Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. Thank you so much, James and prayer partners and church. I would ask you to find in your copy of God's Word, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Let me point out that not only are we praying for the persecuted church, but uh, you can access some of those resources at our table out there next to Holy Ground uh, this Sunday and next Sunday to learn more about how you can support uh, the persecuted church in prayer. So today is actually the last regular message in our Welcome to Babylon teaching series. Uh, We've been in this series for several weeks now, and we have hit on a number of very relevant and very contemporary topics. I say this is the last Sunday. Next Sunday, we're actually going to do another one of our question and answer sessions, which if you've been around Crossgate Church for a little while, you know we do these once or twice a year at the end of uh, various teaching series. And that's basically where you get to submit questions regarding anything that we've covered in the series. And we've covered a lot, haven't we? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground. And you can submit any question you want via the Slido app. So this is an app that you can get on your phone. We will publish on social media and churchwide email this week uh, directions for how to get on there, an event code, all of that. And once you get on that app, you can type in any question that you have regarding this series, either sometime this week, or you can actually submit the question during the service. And then during our normal sermon time uh, next Sunday, we will actually do our best to field all of those questions and answer the, the biggest question of all, and that is, what does the Bible say? So, no holds barred. Anything you want to ask about that's related to this series, ask away, and we will do our absolute best to tell you what the Bible has to say about that topic. But today, we're in Daniel chapter 9, and we are seeing God's people ask a very important question. They've been in Babylon for decades and decades, and they're asking this question, God, how much longer are we going to be in Babylon? And that's a legitimate question, isn't it? I mean, they had been there a long time. They were living in a situation where everything that they held, held near and dear was criticized, marginalized, and demonized, much like we as Jesus-following people in this world uh, today. And we, of course, ask God as well, God, how long will we live in this world where, where Jesus-following, Bible-believing people are the, the, the culture's whipping boy? I mean, how much longer is that going to take place? And we're going to see the answer in Daniel chapter 9, which is probably one of the most powerful passages of Bible prophecy in the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, we're, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to be at the center of gravity for God's predictions and prophecies about what will take place in the distant future, or perhaps not so distant future. And so as we get into that today, I simply want to remind you, as we will remind you throughout the message, that there is a light at the end of the Babylonian tunnel. That's the theme for today. And that light is found in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Now, there's two key things you're going to see today. The first of which is this, the context of the prophecy, and that's specifically our relationship with God. So let's begin reading Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, and selected verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, in other words, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, 
must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So that's what Jeremiah said, you're going to be there for 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord, seeking him in prayer. O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that's the, the, the angel Gabriel, the one and only, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas and for mercy a word went out, and I have come to tell, tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore consider the word and understand the vision. So what we've just read pr provides the context for the prophecy that we'll cover in the second half of the message. But I think it's incredibly important for us to be reminded that the, the context of prophecy and receiving truth and revelation from God is always a relationship with God. And, and, and we highlight several key things here in that relationship. First of all, our relationship with God through the Scriptures. Okay? Daniel went and he was reading Jeremiah 29. And listen, we all know by now that Daniel was a man saturated with the Word of God, with the Scripture of his day. In fact, I would describe Daniel as a chapter and verse follower of God. I hope you're a chapter and verse follower of God. I certainly want to be. And, and why do you say that, Pastor Phil? Well, it's because as we see things unfold in Daniel's life, we always see him going back to specific scriptures that undergirded who he was as God's man. For example, Daniel chapter 1, we covered that a few weeks ago. And Daniel said, should I eat this food off the king's table? What does the Bible say? Well, and then Daniel said, well, in Leviticus 11, it says that there are certain foods I should not eat, so therefore I'm going to abstain. We saw Daniel's robust prayer life last week in Daniel chapter 6, and almost every aspect of his prayer life was somehow undergirded with Scripture. For example, we're told that Daniel prayed facing toward Jerusalem. Well, why did he do that? Well, what does the Bible say? Daniel would say, well, I see King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, praying toward Jerusalem and saying that that would be a best practice for God's people. I also saw King Solomon praying on his knees in 1 Kings chapter 8. That's why I pray on my knees. Uh, also, Daniel prayed three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. Well, why did he do that? Well, Daniel might very well say because in Psalm 55, King David said that he prayed three, three times a day. You see, see what, what's happening in Daniel's life? He's always going back to the Scripture, always going back to the Word of God, always asking the same question that we ask at Crossgate Church every week, which is, what does the Bible say? That's right. That's the most important question that we can ask in terms of understanding what's true and what's right. So, when Daniel said, how long are we going to be in Babylon? The Spirit directed him to Jeremiah 29. Here's the passage. Watch this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What does the Bible say? Seventy years. Boom. God said it. 
that settles it. All right, that was Daniel's thinking. Now listen, Daniel was saturated with the Word of God, and I will tell you to this day, you show me anybody who's a growing follower of Jesus, who lives and loves like Jesus, and leads others to follow him, and I'll show you someone who loves, lives, and learns the Word of God. So the context was the relationship with God through the Scripture. Also notice the context was the relationship with God through prayer. Daniel went to God in prayer. In fact, most of chapter 9 is actually one long prayer that Daniel prayed. I just gave you a few wave tops of that, of that wonderful prayer that he prayed. And we have seen already that Daniel was not just a man who prayed. Daniel was a praying man. And that prayer created a context for him to bring an honest question to God. You notice the context, repentance, humility, prayer. And, and Daniel brings an honest, big question to God. Did you know that you can do that too? I mean, no matter what question you have for God, he can handle it. Did you know that? I mean, my, my, my friends have ghosted me. I don't know why. God, why, why have my friends deserted me? God can handle that question. God, I, 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 I somehow lost my job at work. I didn't even see that coming. Well, what's going on, God? Can God handle that question? Absolutely. God, why, why did my husband die? Why, why did my child die? God, why? You think God can handle that question? God can handle it. You bring any question to God in, in a context of humility and, and repentance and prayer and saying, God, please help me. That's, I mean, God can handle that. See, that, that's what happened with Daniel. He said, God, how much longer are we going to be here? That was an honest question. And so the relationship that we have with God through prayer creates a powerful context into which God speaks. But here's one other. It's our relationship with God through love. Did you see there in chapter 9 where Gabriel, by the way, there's only three people in the whole Bible that Gabriel ever visited. Daniel was one of them. Zechariah was another who was John the Baptist's father. And third was, was Mary. So this is kind of a big deal. I mean, Gabriel coming to Daniel, and he said, Daniel, you are greatly loved. You're greatly loved. I can't speak for Daniel, but I might ask you this question. When was the last time someone communicated that to you? You know, we live in a world filled with lonely people, don't we? More isolated and lonely than we could possibly imagine and yet here's God. He's saying to you today, we're, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, take the Lord's Supper later in the service. The greatest divine act of, of, of love this world has ever known is the cross. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, God says you are greatly, greatly loved. Whoever you are, wherever you're at in life, you are greatly loved. And that creates the context of this relationship, right? Love prayer, scripture. Why, why do we make a big deal about the relationship and the context? Here's why. Because we are about to talk about Bible prophecy. And Bible prophecy is, is one of those topics that, that so many people love to talk about. But our default, listen, our default oftentimes when it comes to talking about Bible prophecy is, is we tend to default to Bible bean counting. You know what I'm saying? 
Bible bean counting. And, and, and we, we like to study the times and the seasons and try to figure all this stuff out and these images and, 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 and the, the predictions and, and all of that. It's so important that we don't get away from the fact that Bible prophecy is meant to speak into a relationship of love with God's people. Okay, I, I think I've shared this little illustration with you before, but it, it bears repeating. Let's pretend we go back in time and we're at a train station, like the old-time train stations, right? A train is going to come into the tracks, the little station is there, you've got the wooden platform right next to it, and at this particular train station, there's two people in the, in the train station, okay? On the one hand, there's the, the station conductor, and he's seated in his office, and he's got his charts, he's got his timelines, he's got his, his little watch in his hand, and, and he just, it's all academic to him. I mean, it's, it's just a job. He, he's pretty sure he knows when the train's coming in, but there's not really a passion. There, there's not really an, an eagerness. He just, here comes the 910 from Yuma. Here comes the 340 from wherever, right? He just, it's just a job, okay? The other person at the station is a young lady. She's dressed in her nicest clothes. She's standing out there on the platform. She's looking down the track around the bend and just, just looking for that train to come. She doesn't even have a, a clock. She, she doesn't have charts. She, she doesn't have all the timetables. All she knows is that that train is coming and she cannot wait. You say, why? Because her fiancé is on the train and she's getting married tomorrow. Now, when it comes to Bible prophecy and specifically the return of Jesus Christ and the coming of Jesus, which one would you rather be? I tell you, I'd much rather be out here on the platform just eagerly longing for Jesus Christ rather than doing my biblical bean counting. Now, certainly there are times to interpret the Word of God as we will do this morning. But I will tell you, there's a context for prophecy, and that context is a relationship with God and a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the first side of the coin. Here's the flip side. Not just the context, but the content. What's the content of the prophecy? Well, it's a revelation from God. It's a word from God directly to Daniel through Gabriel. Let's go to the Scripture Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Again, we are, we are at the, the ground zero in many ways for Bible prophecy in these short few verses. So pay attention. All right, here's what Gabriel said. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and for your holy city. By the way, I'm reading now I'm reading from the New International Version. Okay, the reason being I normally read from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but right now I'm reading this passage from the NIV because it does a much better job of, of translating the intent. Okay, Because many of your translations will say 70 weeks, but I believe that's misleading because it, it, it refers to a specific type of, of, of chronological time. 77s is literally what it says in the original. Okay, let's, let's kick it off again. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. I hope you're writing this down, all right? Follow me. Okay, I'm going to explain all of this. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. 
After the 62 sevens, and what he's really saying is after the 69 sevens, because he talked about seven sevens and then 62, which totally is 69. So after the 69 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Wow, Pastor Phil, what in the world is going on in this passage? Well, I'm going to unpack it for you. But before we do that, let's step back and take a look at a couple of big picture items that will help us to better understand. The first of which is what I call Daniel dimensions. Okay, the Daniel dimensions. This is helpful. You might want to take a picture of this with your device there. Dimension one, all right, this is where Daniel lived. This is, this is Daniel chapter nine. Gabriel is giving Daniel the prophecy, and of course, it's obviously talking about Jesus, and we'll talk about that in a second. That's dimension one. Dimension two is when Jesus came the first time, when, when he died, when he was buried, when he rose again, right? And then, of course, dimension three is Jesus' second coming. Uh, many scholars over the years and theologians have described this as the already and not yet, primarily because the dotted line represents where we are today, right? Does everybody understand that? This is where we're at today. We, we are living in this time period between dimension two, the first coming of Jesus, and dimension three, Jesus's return. We're living between the already and the not yet. That's just important to understand as we, as we get into the details here. Here's the other thing that you need to think about. When it comes to Bible prophecy, and, and honestly, many theological portions of, of, of what the Bible has to say, but certainly prophecy, there's two main schools of thought, two main camps. One is called dispensationalism. You don't have to write that down yet. I'm going to put the word up on the screen so you can know how to spell it. The second one is covenantalism. All right? And there's two key themes that, that come up time and again when it comes to studying prophecy under these two rubrics. Okay? One is the relationship between Israel and the church. All right? And I'm going to give you a nutshell here of what dispensationalists would believe and what covenantalists would believe. So a dispensationalist would say national Israel has been and always will be God's main effort. However, in the current age, which began with Jesus' ascension, that's the already not yet that we talked about, the church is God's priority temporarily. At some point in the future, God will remove the church from the earth, and that's called the secret rapture, or some people would specifically say the premillennial rapture of the church, and national Israel will reclaim its position as God's main effort until Jesus returns once and for all. So that's, in a nutshell, that's the dispensational perspective. The covenantal perspective says this, national Israel played a role for a time prior to the coming of Jesus, but the church is ultimately God's main effort and fulfills God's promise to Abraham, made all the way back in Genesis. The majority of Old Testament future prophecies about God's people are fulfilled in the church, although the church does not completely replace Israel. Now, I, trust me, I'm, I'm just hitting the, the top of the surface here, just, just scratching the top of the surface in these definitions, but you can see there's definitely a difference there. Here's the other topic on which these diverge. Okay, prophecies, are they literal or are they symbolic? Dispensationalism would say most, mostly seeks a literal interpretation of everything prophetic in the Bible. 
For example, the thousand-year millennium mentioned in Revelation 20 speaks of a literal thousand-year kingdom that Jesus will establish on the earth when he returns. Okay? The covenantal perspective, on the other hand, often sees a symbolic uh, truth behind statements in the Bible. For example, the thousand-year millennium mentioned in Revelation 20 symbolizes the church as the kingdom already established by Jesus. You say, Phil, you got the dispensationalist, you got the covenantalist. What are you? Well, I'm going to throw a curveball at you and tell you I ain't neither one of them. Okay, I ain't neither one of them because here's the deal: I refuse to be pigeonholed by any ism. All right, I want to go back to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say? And, and I want to search the scriptures for myself and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures that I might understand what God is trying to tell us. A couple reasons why I don't just automatically follow any of the isms. One, uh, because every ism is ultimately a man-made, prepackaged system. All right? And again, I want to go back and I want to ask, what does the Bible say? The other reason why I don't follow any of the isms re religiously and rigidly is it's like my... my um, Professor down at New Orleans Seminary, who is now in heaven, a man named Rick Byerjohn, used to say, there's coming a day when all of the isms will be wasms. Amen? Listen, all of the isms will be wasms. I'll tell you, I, I think there's some truth in both of these perspectives. For example, I, I personally, I mean, I'm not going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody over this because it's a secondary issue, okay? But I personally think that, yes, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, the church became God's main effort on the earth, and the church will be God's main effort for all eternity. I'm not saying that God has completely, you know, just removed the, uh, the Israel from his, from his economy, but I will tell you, I believe the church is the main effort. On the other hand, I tend to read most prophecies literally when it comes to dates and, and, and numbers and, and things along those lines, as you'll see in just a moment. Okay, now, here's the thing. Okay, when we get into this specific prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, here's four specific things I want you to see. Okay, the first of which is this, it's prophetically defined prophetically defined now look back in the scripture in verse 24 all right gabriel specifically says that the 70 years that jeremiah mentioned actually there's a broader prophetic application to those 70 years because it wasn't 70 it was 70 sevens 70 sevens okay and what is, i mean 70 times seven is what 490. All right, so there's 490 somethings that he's talking about there. It, it didn't mean 70 years per se. Ultimately, the, 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 uh, just how the thing, this thing is unpacked is 77. So it's 490. Now, the covenantal perspective would say that, that 490 refers to just a, a period of time. It, it doesn't refer to 490 anythings per se, but there's this, there's this multiple of seven there that, that refers to God's perfect timing of the events that ultimately culminate with the coming of Jesus Christ. A dispensational perspective would say, wait a minute, if it says 490, it means 490, we just got to figure out what those 490 are. And Jeremiah's original prophecy was in years, right? 70 years, okay? So that means it's going to be 490 years. And I, that's where I fall as well. I believe if it says 490, it's going to be 490. And the reason why I believe it's years is, again, because that was Jeremiah's prophecy, okay? And it's very important that we see that he's pointing to something here. 490 years, prophetically defined. But here's the second thing I want you to see. This prophecy is amazingly accurate. Amazingly accurate. And let me show this. And listen, 
This is going to be a lot of information. If you've got a pen, you might want to burn your page up and write some of this stuff down, okay? So, 490 years. The next question, of course, is this. When does the clock start ticking on the 490 years? Well, that's easy, right? Because in verse 25, what does it say? From the time of the decree to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That's when the clock starts ticking. Okay, well, when was that, Pastor Phil? Again, that's actually a pretty easy thing to figure out. Nehemiah chapter 2, Artaxerxes the king issued a decree for the people to go back and to begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You say, when, when was that? Well, we know that, that the Bible says it's in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. In fact, Nehemiah even says that it was in the month of Nisan, which is, which is in the Jewish calendar, the month of Nisan. And history tells us it was the 15th day of Nisan in the year 444 B.C. when this decree was made. Okay, so that, that starts the clock ticking. But notice also, and this is not something you see in the Bible, you'd have to know this from the backstory in history. Okay, the, the Jewish lunar prophetic calendar said that a year was not 365 days, the year was actually 360 days. Okay, so mark that down, 360 days. So it's 490 years at 360 days per year. Oh, and here's one other thing you need to see. Look back at the scripture again. What does the Bible say? Gabriel said that there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, so a total of 69 sevens from the decree until the time when the anointed one is cut off or is put to death, which, of course, we know the anointed one is whom? Jesus, yes. Okay, so 69 sevens. All right, so in other words, that's how many years? How many days? Okay, 483 years multiplied, listen, by 360, guess what number you get? You don't have to figure it out because I'm fixing to tell you. 173,880 days. All right, file that away because this is where things get really, really cool. All right, the decree is issued. 173,880 days later, guess what day on the calendar comes up? On our calendar, it's April 3rd, A.D. 33. Now, that date may not ring a bell in your life, okay? You probably don't remember what was going on on April 3rd, A.D. 33. But let me ask you this. When was Jesus Christ crucified? Well, people have debated that for years, but I believe so many of the leading scholars have said, and to include New Testament scholar Andreas Kossenberger, uh, Cambridge scientist Colin Humphreys, uh, Oxford astrophysicist Graham Waddington, guess when all of them agree that Jesus was crucified? April 3rd, A.D. 33. How's, I mean, unbelievable when you think about it. That's, I mean, amazingly accurate. If nothing else, that should tell you you can trust your Bible. If nothing else, that should tell you you can trust the accuracy of the Word of God. Oh, and here's something else amazing to think about. Something else that's amazing is this. Look in the Scripture. The NIV says the anointed one will be put to death. Many of your translations say he will be cut off. Okay, understand this. That wording in the original language was used in the Old Testament specifically to describe the death of a wicked person or the death of a criminal. Specifically. 
All right? For example, Genesis chapter 9, that the evil people were cut off or put to death by the flood. Leviticus 7, Psalm 37, Proverbs chapter 2. Again, the wicked will be cut off. They will be put to death. And I might also point out that Jeremiah chapter 11 contains this phrase, I was led to slaughter as a gentle lamb. Again, the same language, the same context. What does that say to you? Was Jesus executed as a criminal? Yes, he was. In fact, he was executed with a thief on his right hand and his left hand. Jesus died a criminal's death just as Daniel 9 said. Incredible accuracy from the Word of God. Here's the third thing, and that is this, that it is chronologically expanded. All right, so Pastor Phil, you, first you said 490 years, but then you just said only 483 years took place between the decree and the death of Jesus. Where did that other seven years go? Boy, that's a great, great question, okay? Because there's one more seven that hasn't been covered yet. I mean, Daniel chapter 9 says so. There's going to be seven sevens, 62 sevens, and then you're going to see this, the death of the anointed one and so forth, and then there's going to be this, this other seven. Where did that other seven go? All right, the covenantal perspective would say that that seven began immediately after the other sevens. It's just one long line of sevens, all right? And so the, the last seven took place after Jesus died on the cross, and by and large, it is in the past. Okay? The dispensational view would say, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Because the, the events depicted in specifically chapter, excuse me, verse 27, they definitely haven't happened yet. And so is it possible that there is a gap in time as if God reached in and, and hit the pause button on his prophetic timeline after the 69 sevens, 483 years, and then he hits a pause? So that the, the last seven is something yet to happen. I, 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 I tend to believe that myself. Uh, I, I tend to see that in the prophecy that, that that last seven has yet to occur. Now, there's events that have already happened. Yes, so for example, when you see the ruler that came in and destroyed Jerusalem, who was that? Well, most people agree that that was the Roman general Titus in A.D. 70. Uh, Jesus predicted the downfall and destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem in Luke 21 and in other places. And of course, history bears this out, that yes, Titus came in, the Romans completely leveled Jerusalem and all of that. But then when you see other things taking place beyond that, seems to be those things haven't happened yet, especially in the context of, of the Word of God. So, for example, when it talks about He will come and establish a covenant, He will, he will cause the, the offering to cease, He will pour out desolations. Who, who is He? Who, now who are we talking about? I personally believe, along with a lot of Bible scholars, believe that that is referencing the same individual mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, known as the man of sin, known as the, the, son of, of, the, the son of destruction, and traditionally in the church known as the Antichrist. Yes, an individual who is yet to appear, who will, who will perpetrate unspeakable evils against the people of God. That's what we see happening there. I do believe there's a, there's a, there's a gap, there's an expansion of time so that that last seven has yet to occur. But here's the good news, because the last thing I want you to see is this, and we're going to wrap up on this. We are ultimately victorious, all right? Because someday, guess what? 666 is going to meet 777. 
and his name is Jesus Christ. Right, how do we know this? Well, we skipped over it because we can't cover everything, but in Daniel chapter 7, we see this prophecy. Look at this. I love this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Uh, yes, absolutely, unbelievable. That's, that is Daniel chapter 7, but guess what? It gets even better than that. Revelation 11 really talks about the same thing. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and I want to add ever and ever and ever and ever, and all God's people said, ever. Amen. Yes, praise God. That is the word of God. And I want to tell you something, folks. This morning, some of you are wondering, how long? I guarantee you the persecuted church is asking, how long? And I want to tell you what the Word of God says, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Now, in just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this is a reminder of, of what Daniel 9 talked about, that this anointed one, the, the, the Messiah, would come and, and, and be killed as a criminal. Why? It's for you and for me. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.